0: Welcome to Explore the Space. We're digging into healthcare issues that matter most. Our guests and conversations mine these issues for perspective and answers.
1: There is a gulf between healthcare and our communities. This is the place to talk about it. Now here's your host, Dr. Mark Shapiro.
0: Welcome back to Explore the Space podcast. I am your host, Mark Shapiro. Before we get to today's episode, just wanna thank our sponsors, Lori Bedke and Creighton University. Creighton University believes in equipping physicians for success in the exam room, the operating room, and the boardroom. If you want to increase your business acumen, deepen your leadership knowledge, and earn your seat at the table, Creighton's healthcare executive education is for you. Specifically tailored to busy physicians, our hybrid programs blend the richness of on-campus residencies with the flexibility of online learning. Earn a Creighton University Executive MBA degree in 18 months or complete the non-degree Executive Fellowship in six months. Visit www.creighton.edu/chee to learn more. I would also like to shout out www.votehealth2020.com. This is a nonpartisan physician-driven organization built around the desire to activate physicians, medical students, and healthcare providers to get registered, make a voting plan, and vote. The Morning Report initiative has gone live. If you would like myself or one of the other physicians working with Vote Health 2020 to come to any meeting you've got, to walk through the steps, to get registered, to make a voting plan, and to get your ballot out there to make sure that our impact is felt on the policies and the elections that matter towards the healthcare that we deliver, please email info at votehealth2020.com. We're talking about a less than five-minute nonpartisan free virtual presentation. We'll have one slide that you can distribute to your team. Please email us. I've done one of these so far. It is awesome. I cannot wait to do more. I know the rest of the team feels the same way. Please email info at votehealth2020.com to get the morning report initiative brought to your meeting. My guest in this episode of Explore the Space podcast is Dr. Dara Kass. Dr. Cass is an emergency physician at Columbia University. She is the founder of Fem in EM, and she is a nationally sought-after expert for all topics related to the COVID-19 pandemic. You have probably seen her on most of the major news platforms. She is an extraordinary ambassador for a good, correct, thoughtful science, as well as a great representative for the profession of medicine. She joins us in this episode to break down what I like to think of as the calendar fallacy, this idea that as we move through this incredibly turbulent, traumatic, difficult year of 2020, that somehow when the calendar changes to 2021, that things will be different, and the extraordinary mindset that she carries around creating change amidst chaos. We also dive into how and why the media space has become more representative and the vital need to ensure that those who are doing the work are fairly compensated and supported properly. Dr. Cass is an extraordinary voice. I am delighted that she was able to come on the show. Before we get to her, just want to remind everyone, please subscribe to and rate Explore the Space on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to download your shows. That really helps us out. Definitely email me anytime, mark at explorethespaceshow.com. Check out the archive for Explore the Space at www.explorethespaceshow.com and definitely connect with me on social media at ETSshow this episode with dr cass is just absolutely packed without further ado dr dara cass dara welcome to the podcast thank you so much for coming on
1: thank you always for having me
0: we are at this interesting place there is there's is so much going on And you and I both spend, I think you could probably safely say too much time on Twitter. I know I spend too much time in that space, but I learn a lot there and I feel a lot of connection in that space. Acknowledging that, we also see the same things. And one of the things that we're seeing, and this is why I reached out to you, was this idea of as we're moving through so many things at the same time and it is so difficult there's this acknowledgement of we're approaching the end of the calendar year 2020, and there are these comments on, I hate 2020, I want 2020 to be over, et cetera, et cetera, and I, it doesn't land very well with me, and it's come to me as there's this idea of what, I, what I'm starting to call the calendar fallacy. Do you see the same dynamic when you see these posts about 2020 is the worst and these sorts of things? Where does that land with you? Where does that sit with you?
1: So I I happen to think 2020 is the worst.
0: But But it is. It is.
1: It's an opportunity. Uh, I think that, you know, a lot of people need to identify something concrete, something controllable about what's happening right now. And the idea that as soon as the year changed, it just felt like all of a sudden these things just kept falling like dominoes, right? So we were in the middle of, you know, kind of a primary season. The country was fractured and we were dealing with. Uh, you know, a lot of uncertainties, but it was, it was a weird time in January and February. And then all of a sudden, you know, the guardrails came off and we are now in a runaway train of chaos. And I think people are looking for somehow that to feel final and end. And because they don't know where else to turn, they use the calendar as an opportunity to have this somehow turn the page. I get that. It's not really how I function. I don't do artificial timelines well, because I feel like they come and go. It's like birthdays, right? I just had my birthday last week. And people always ask you on your birthday, how do you feel? And I'm always like, the same I did yesterday and probably the same I will tomorrow, <laughs> right. right? And and so that internalization of that birthdays are um, a landmark because you need them just like a clock to know how old you are. They don't really, nothing magical happens the day before or after you turn 43 like I just did. And so I, I, I get the feeling I don't necessarily subscribe to it. I'm much more uh, the kind of person that looks at opportunities to make the next day better. And that's, I think, how I've tried to approach this pandemic and the moments that we're in now. What am I doing today and tomorrow to start changing the world for the better? Uh, if I can and if I fail today, well, I'll try again the next day. Uh, and that's very much kind of where I look to change things. There are landmarks we can't move. We can't move election day, we can't move the 4th of July, we can't move certain things that I guess may or may not have certain meanings. Um, But I try to at least when I'm looking for change, I try not to wait until some sort of a unnecessary landmark and just start now.
0: We talk about mindsets on Explore the Space a lot. And what you just described, at least for me, is a very advanced mindset around dealing with chaos, dealing with crisis. And I very much like and appreciate it. I think what I worry about is for those of us who are still working to get to that sort of advanced mindset that you have. That there's a, a either a passivity or a learned helplessness almost that somehow that artificial timestamp is going to make things different. And the reason that this episode and having you on now for me feels right and meaningful is not only to illustrate the mindset that you carry, but to illustrate this idea of timestamps not affecting change. Because for you and I, we are celebrating a new year right now. Shonatova to you, by the way. It's Rosh Hashanah. It's the much. Ju- yeah, it's, it's, it's Rosh Hashanah. It's the Jewish New Year. It's, it's 5781. And guess what happens? Nothing is going to be different in 48 hours after we finish celebrating Rosh Hashanah. Unless we choose to adopt the mindset that you describe to take action and make things different. So,
1: no, I was like, I agree with you. And I was laughing because uh, for the first time ever. So, you know, as a Jewish child, I didn't have Christmas. Right. And none of us did. And so we were always like a little jealous of Christmas. And I, so somebody on Twitter said today, you know, or I think it was Facebook, you know, congratulations to my Jewish friends. You got the new year before we did. We're so jealous. And I was like,
0: this is
1: payback for Christmas. <laughs> so although I don't subscribe necessarily to these artificial time changes, I do love the idea that today for people that are looking for the change, everybody's trying to be a Jew today and get on <laughs> our New York calendar so that they can also turn the page on the new
0: That year. is awesome. I, I don't use Facebook anymore, so I'm going to miss out on that. So I'm really glad that you told me about that because that yeah. is absolutely delightful. But acknowledging that, right, again, in in a couple of days, we're still going to be, you know, knee deep in the quagmire. It is helpful for me and for others to get a sense of what helped you get to the mindset that you carry around this, that it's not about the date on the calendar. It's not about the year depicted on the calendar. It's about what can we do to take action to try to get better you articulated that so beautifully what would you say are some of the levers some of the critical things that you do just on the daily basis the granular Mm -hmm. stuff that keeps that going forward it sounds aspirational and lofty but i'm sure it's daily work
1: Yes. So, okay. I actually want to use an example in my own life that isn't around this pandemic, but another life crisis. So I am not quiet about this. I have a child who had a liver transplant when he was two years old. And why is that important? So when we found out that he was sick and more importantly, that there was going to be this thing we were going to do in two years to fix him, right? There's this, this feeling of paralysis around the idea that the the pivotal moment, the transplant is this thing you're waiting for, but how do you remain sane right? And feel in control while you're waiting for that to happen. And that's one of those things you can't move uh, and you need, but you also can make your life better while you're waiting for it. And transplant medicine is super interesting because there are a lot of things that take time. And you can't change that course. It has to do with risks of infection. It has to do with medications. It has to do with getting better. And so I had to let go of this anxiety around waiting for things and just learn how to deal in the moment with the things that I could handle. Right. And so I would look at each day and say, how are we doing today as a family? And what Am I managing that I can handle whether it's, you know, kind of making sure that the medications are good or making sure that our family had a one discrete good moment that was without the cloud of illness, right? Making sure that we were functioning while waiting for these other events to happen that I couldn't control. And what you learn is if you take your life down to these bite-sized pieces of controllable events that give you joy or certainly purpose... You can, they add up silently to buffer a sense of lack of control around the things that you're just waiting for. And so for me, in this moment, I use those lessons to say, what am I doing today to engage voters? What am I doing today to engage my family and educate them about what their decisions are around this pandemic? What am I doing today to remind my children and my husband that we are very lucky today to still have a home and our health and our family? And at the end of that day, I realized that I've moved slowly closer to this other landmark that I'm waiting for, whether it is a new year or an election or a vaccine or other things that we need to move forward. And so to me, it's a lot of bite-sized gratitudes and activity. So this is not a passive experience. This is what am I doing today? to further my cause, my sanity, my gratitude as we all move forward together. And for six months in the pandemic, I've been doing it and I don't feel out of control.
0: It's amazing to to hear that summation and it end with you don't feel out of control because I think that that is the pivot point for so many people. Everything feels out of control. What you're describing is the prescription to have some semblance of control while recognizing the chaos that is around you. And I think that that's really exciting. I think that is what people want. It's certainly what I would want and would like to feel. But but still in that place, there are things that are of a size that we are dealing with. And you've been doing this for a long time. You were very engaged throughout the primary season. You've been very engaged during the pandemic. It's been extraordinary to watch you and so many other incredible American physicians rise to the fore to share what we know and what we've learned. You had COVID and we're very transparent about that experience. As I say that out loud. I think of a couple things. I have tremendous pride in knowing you. I'm delighted that you're on this show right now. But I also think that must be so tiring. How do you deal (laughs) with the fatigue? How do you deal with the grind so that you can continue to press the fight?
1: Yeah, it is actually exhausting. And I think that I'm still learning how to put in guardrails to my own life yeah. uh, about self-protection and inputs. So one of the hardest parts about this pandemic, unlike a lot of others, is that I do view my engagement on Twitter and social media as a responsibility to my community. The reason I'm still on Facebook is not because I enjoy being on Facebook. I actually have a huge amount of disdain for Facebook, it's that it's the easiest way for me to message to people that I know, loosely or in real life, uh, accurate information around this pandemic and what it means for their lives. I continue to take my cell phone out of my bedroom. I continue to, you know, have a time where I turn everything off. I continue to try and go outside without any electronic connections, um, while also realizing that that will mean that I will miss something that I would have wanted to address. But it is hard. And I think that you just need to keep checking yourself and somehow connecting with whatever keeps you sane or grounded. Um, I am certain that I am not as engaged of a parent some days as I should be. But I also, by fortune of this pandemic, see my children every single day, which I never did before. You know, when you're working as a physician, there are days you don't see your family. That isn't true anymore, mostly because my children don't leave the house to go to school. You know?
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: My husband works from an office next door to me, so they're all home all the time.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's it's funny that you say that. I I have a bunch of friends that used to travel for work, and, you know, they'd spend a a great deal of time on the road and to a person i could literally put them in an, in a room you know all closed off with a voice disguiser that standardizes their voice and they would all say almost to the word the same thing around i'm never ever doing that again what i'm doing now yeah. is far better far more rewarding i feel better i'm physically more healthy i'm never traveling like that again it's a really interesting kind of spin off that we're seeing with all of this
1: Yeah, I think that that's, I mean, uh, you know, and actually one of those really interesting lines for me is actually grand round. So when you go give visiting lectures, I was, I actually budgeted about three to four days a month to go and give lectures at other institutions around the country. And I really enjoyed it. I enjoy lecturing in front of a crowd. I enjoy engaging, you know, nationally. I enjoy seeing people that I haven't seen in a while and I enjoy seeing American cities. But That one time a month became two times a month or it became three weeks out of the month that I was going to a city and back and it was exhausting and I don't have that anymore. Six months of no travel has been kind of remarkable and I don't know that I'm going to do it again if I can still figure out how to give lectures virtually. I think I might stick with this for a while.
0: I think there's a lot of people that are in the same place and not to not to mention the impact that it has when you're altering your carbon footprint, not to say that we're going to move the needle by individual choices around climate change, but that's part of it. And it all matters. So it's it's a really interesting kind of side effect of all of this. Do you think that that is giving you more energy for the fight or is it somehow a detraction? We laugh about, you know, the family's all in the house at the same time and the kids aren't in school (laughs) and we chuckle about it, but that carries its own demands. Is there more energy because you're not traveling, that you're not having that separation? Or is that another friction point?
1: Or is it both? So it's both. So I think that, um, you know, there is a there are crises, there are kind of many crises happening at the same time. And I think child care crisis in America has been, you know, at the back burner for a long time. And now we're seeing it at the forefront. I am incredibly fortunate and also, and I will be very honest. Take control of my space as best I can. So um, I have an au pair, which is something that not everybody has, and that's fortunate as well. You know, and that's something that I had planned to have in my life for lots of reasons. In the pandemic, that became the most reliable form of childcare because she lived in our house, and so we didn't have to worry about somebody transporting from you know their own home and their own childcare. And so that was for me an element of consistency that my kids had that I had that allowed me to still work through the time when other people I know were really having a hard time to manage. But then the other part of it is, is that now looking at school for my children in the fall, I took control of some uncertainties that I, that otherwise might've caught me by surprise, whether it's, you know, guiding my children in the right environment in our house or making sure that they had, uh, you know, kind of a setup that was less likely to fail, if that makes any sense. So I think that for me, I have not had as many consequences from a childcare crisis aspect as so many people in America. And I've been trying to amplify those concerns because that's a gender issue, unfortunately, right? We're seeing the exacerbation of the gender divide when it comes to the workplace and responsibilities. I've been asking vocally and encouraging non-historically non-primary parents to step up in my own house, not just uh, outside (laughs) on Twitter, Uh, because I think that there is a really interesting opportunity for parents who are not at home for a long time, mostly the higher earner, which historically has been, you know, not the female generally in a uh, heterosexual family, that is has has deferred for the workplace the child care responsibilities to the other parent, right? If there are two parents. Yeah. And now that everyone's home, right? Everyone's working from home. There's no reason that the non-primary parent who is also working from home can't schedule their meetings to get, leave a gap between, you know, 8 and 10 a.m. to make sure that everyone gets off to their school Zoom the right way. Trying to encourage that level of parity on the ground has helped, I think, a lot of people through what is otherwise an overwhelming crisis of childcare and gender bias coming through this pandemic.
0: There's a lot of reasons I like being a hospitalist and never more so now the time off that I have when I'm not on service. I'm home with my boy and I can relieve my wife and she can then relieve me. And, you know, you and I are going to record and then we're going to wrap up and he and I are going to go play on at the park and drive his RC trucks and it'll be great. And that is something about the profession that I've chosen that when I chose it, I didn't think would be as important, as exciting and as vital as it is, but it's critical. And again, that idea of how can I adapt? How can I get better? How can I do things differently? that you described so beautifully at the beginning this is where we all are At the same time, though, acknowledging the privilege that comes with being a physician and not having the pressures and stressors that the vast majority of Americans have. And so that brings us to the next place. We have so many things that we want and aspire and would like to see happen for the rest of the people that live in the United States. You are putting a lot of time and energy into that place, that slow process of getting better, of making things different. You're putting a lot of energy into the upcoming election season. Season. And I don't just like to say presidential election. As a Californian, right. my ballot is going to be packed with state issues and local issues that are going to have tremendous impact on my daily life. It's election season. What are the things for you that feel meaningful and the steps that you're taking in that process of trying to do better?
1: So, uh, one of the first things I think, especially right now, that I've been doing is engaging people to verbalize their plan to vote. Yeah. Right. I think that one of the things that I have done myself and I find that lots and lots of people have done is they want to vote. They do. They really do. They ex- they know it's their responsibility. They feel engaged. And then election day comes and they're busy. Right. They didn't realize they were going to be out of town. They didn't realize that they had you know they're going to be on a 24 hour call or whatever it is. And if you kind of engage people now and say what. And, and this is nonpartisan. Right? It's political, but not partisan. So get people to verbalize their plan to vote now. Six weeks in advance and encourage people, in my opinion, if they're in an environment that it is possible to vote safely early so that they are now taking that off their plate, right? If there are, if your community allows early voting, you can be an engaged voter and then you can continue to message people after the fact. I already voted. What is your plan? How can I help you? Do you want to drive people to the polls? Do you want to be a poll worker? So those are the things I think that are kind of not just unique to this election that I think is calling a lot of people to action, but is a sustainable change that I hope to see for the democracy going forward. Because once you get used to verbalizing your plan to vote and you internalize how important it is to vote actually, not just in theory, you tend to vote every election after that.
0: It's a really good point, And it's actually similar work that I've been doing in the space of helping people articulate the plan and better understand what does it mean to get ready to vote. We know that physicians historically have not voted in, at the same level as the rest of the population. And I think it boils down to a couple of the things that you just described. But a big one is if you don't have a plan on the day and you're on call in the ICU... You're not going to be able to go if you're a resident and you haven't discussed with your team. Hey, we're we're on we're post call that day. What's our plan? How do we cover one another? It's not going to happen. And I think we want to normalize the behaviors that we've seen some people role model around. Let's talk about this early. And if it's on the day and we have to vote in person on Election Day, can we cover each other? Can I carry your pager? And then you carry mine. These sorts of things. I do think we can normalize. What are the things that you have found to be effective when you get to meet with an individual, when you get to, you give a lot of talks, when you give talks, when you go on TV, what are the pieces that you find that are effective and also generalizable so that when people who follow and know and have really come to like and respect and admire you say, I want to do what Dara is doing, what are the pieces and the tools that you give them?
1: So first and foremost, I think it's not to take for granted that your opinion or your perspective doesn't matter right a lot of people feel like what they're doing for themselves or even sharing how they you know how they're going to vote or why they feel a certain way or the limits of their family or you know being open and honest and um and engaging okay uh, i think it's undervalued by a lot of people and i think that also doing that while looking for larger systemic change and i think a good example of that would be why did i share that i was coronavirus positive right so i um could have just lived my life on Twitter and raged a little bit. But like, I had a lot going on, right? I had kids in the pandemic in New York City and all this stuff. But at the same time, I saw all this noise around me of people that started to blame other people for exposing them to the coronavirus, right? They didn't have accurate testing. There was a lot of rumblings about who gets it, who spreads it, how does it get spread? And one of the things I could do in March, as soon as I found out that I had it. And I'm calculated about this a lot. My husband and I talked about it because I found that I was positive on a Thursday night and Friday I had figured out how I was going to tell people, right? Which was, you know, a Facebook post and an article in Vogue, (laughs) which is very funny, (laughs) you know, and the article in Vogue happened before I found that I was positive and a friend of mine had interviewed me for just what is it like to be a frontline worker? I was coughing during the interview and she oh, said, wow, yeah, she's like, you're coughing. And I was like, yeah, I am. I just got tested. I don't have the results yet. And she's like, well, would you share your results with the article? Like when it comes out, and I said, I need to figure that out. Right. I need to decide. And then I found that I was positive and I called her and I said, Let's put it in, because it will be a really important way. And it's a big platform, obviously, to remind America that this is real, but it's also not something to be embarrassed by. Right. We in the very beginning had these parallels between, you know, HIV and this virus, not that there are parallels in the actual viruses themselves, but in this stigma around being infected and being contagious. And I very much wanted to make sure that I would contribute to destigmatizing that. And so I came out loud when I was positive, And then I was doing all these interviews from quarantine to show people that it isn't so scary, but everybody has a different course. And I hoped that that would engage people in a conversation of humility and honesty and compassion around this virus. My point in bringing that up, I think, is that sharing your story and seeing how it lands and being open to hearing other people's stories and um, realizing that a lot of people feel excluded and a lot of people feel marginalized. And it's not always the people that are clearly or obviously marginalized. But when I was texting people in my address book to say, what is your plan to vote? I got a lot of heart emojis, thank you. You know, I really appreciate you reaching out. And then my next ask of them is now you do the same thing. Right. You go into your address book and please text the people in your life and ask them how they're voting. And that has a domino effect on the voter population. Again, political, but not partisan. That I think is really impactful.
0: It's 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 great work and it's easy to do because we all kind of have that address book and we can create the the text that we send our friends. I'm texting all the time. And, and I think that that's a really, really powerful tool you have also done this on big platforms, and you mentioned that, you know, you were in in Vogue magazine, you're on TV a lot, you've written in on big platforms. And the, as I think about that for you, and I think about kind of how things have changed in the last six months in parallel with what you have, I think, accurately described as the increasing gender inequities that the COVID-19 pandemic has exposed, and this is something that we've talked about on the podcast as well. Some of the most important, critical, impactful, and inspiring voices that, that have come forward, some, most, quite honestly, for me at least, are, are women in medicine and women in the sciences. As I am excited about it, I also wonder, and I'm curious for your insights around, is it going to move the needle Is it as this winds down at some point in the future, will the impact that you and Megan and Esther and Rana and Angie and so many incredible people have had, is that going to help close the gap or is that going to be part of the historical record? This happened and now it's back to the way it used to be.
1: I think it depends on um, on what we do next and why this happened. And I know why it happened right now. I have a very clear idea of why we are seeing more diverse voices in the spaces around this pandemic. It has been because we're filming from home. (laughs) Yeah. It has been because there are many fewer barriers to having your voice matter, whether it's through social media or even on television. You know, we have had, if you look at the landscape of physicians and scientists that have been interviewed on television, on traditional networks, if you take away the paid medical like network correspondence, the people that have been there for a long time, you realize that and, and, and there are there's a gender parity on on some networks, not all. But when you look at the the ground interviews, the people that are taking care of the patients, you'll see that there is a better diverse representation. Uh, and it's because a lot of us took control of putting ourselves out there, being on Twitter and, and answering the call because we didn't have to worry about traveling to a studio. We could do it from home and we could balance it with the other, honestly, the other things we had in our life. It also, we have each other, right? So there's this, there are these networks of physicians, women in healthcare that have supported and amplified each other for so long that we get taken more seriously now, right? And that has, I think, reaching consequences. Uh, You know, there are lists that are put out that are now 50% women, you know, and have representation of people of color and representation of scientists that weren't necessarily represented before. And so that is sustainable change. The second part of this is, are they getting paid? And I think that that's where you see better longstanding change, right? So this pandemic is unique insofar as we have all created space to be public messengers around the information that has to be disseminated because there's so much information, and we are actively messaging against misinformation and disinformation, misinformation being accidental, disinformation being intentional. Um, and for that, a lot of us will give it away, right? All of us, men, women, we feel this is our, our calling as physicians, scientists and as Americans. For sustainable change, that has to be paid and compensated. And we have to create the time for that. And there has to be a a sustained need for it, right? And so I'm waiting for that other shoe to drop for institutions to support this work. Nobody I know who works in an academic institution is fiscally supported to be a public messenger by their institution.
0: But the institutions love it. And the next time you come on the show, we're going to talk about this because there is a, an obvious and clear tension when th- these wonderful people are on the major networks in the United States and the title that they carry, assistant professor, associate professor, and the, un- and the institution name is, is right there on the Chiron and they're not getting paid and they're not getting time and they're not getting supported. That's inappropriate. In my opinion, and, and
1: again, I want this to be. I, I'm friends with a lot of people, right? I, yeah. A lot of people, so this is com- not specific to any one institution. Certainly no. not my own. No, um, not But at all. it is standard. It is yes. standard because it's an, It's like it's like publishing papers. That's right. right. That's and right. And it's like you know, it's part of your academic productivity in a lot of ways, and it is an expectation. But you want to make sure that across the board. Yeah. And this goes back to again, not just institutions, but also organizations and also other messaging. Our our national organizations are... Professional organizations, you become a spokesperson for that, and that's Mm -hmm. also not compensated. But
0: just like Uh, we've pivoted so many things in our profession on a dime in this pandemic, this can and should be one of them, right? We've pivoted to telehealth, and I know you do work in that space. We've pivoted so many things inside the hospital to change how we deliver care, outside the hospital to change how we deliver care, how we interview, how we recruit. It's all different. This could and should be different, too, because the work is essential. The work is critical. The work amplifies both the speaker and And the institution. The work must be done. It needs to be integrated into what makes someone feel whole around their time, their energy, and their expertise.
1: I will also say, again, um, having a lot of friends that work at lots of institutions, and you can read the tea leaves by who's out there, there are institutions that will not let their faculty be public messengers. And so that is another whole bag of complicated, Yeah. because yeah. if you are a, and, and you, you kind of could look at random televisions and say, which institutions are not represented, yeah. um, you realize that those faculty members are functionally or practically not contributing to this really critical aspect of public health right now.
0: Oh.
1: Uh, and that's a shame.
0: It's that's a it's a critical call out. And I think, again, in that mindset of how do we do this so we can get better? And this isn't to put academic institutions in America or our big healthcare organizations into the fire. But I think that there is an opportunity to, to invite them to get better and to say you have the best, right. brightest, smartest, most highly motivated and ready to do the work roster of people a turn them loose and b turn them loose in a way that is sustainable and that feels whole and makes them and and is correct because it's it's it can absolutely be done and it's just another big pivot that we have to make and we've already made a bunch so we know we can do it it's really hard to say that's too much that's too anything because look at all the things we've already done totally on that note I want to turn you loose. I have taken enough of your time. I don't want to (laughs) keep you from the other things that you do that are so vitally important. But before we do go, where do people follow you? Because you do share in a very transparent manner. You do provide outstanding information. You are being recognized more and more of one of our most important voices in this time and place. Where do people go to follow you, read you, learn from you?
1: So I I, I I hate and love to say Twitter because it's where I am the most. And yeah. it was funny <laughs> yeah. just to be reflective on that is that my birthday, like I said, was, you know, a week ago, a week and a half ago. And for the first time ever, I had, you know, you have Facebook birthdays for the last 10 years. You know, all your friends and family, people you've never seen, hardly seen over the past few years. They all give you Facebook shout outs. And it, it's funny. Right now, for the first year, I had a Twitter birthday where like I got all these, you know, Twitter friends that were like, happy birthday. And I laughed because it proves how my life has pivoted there, you know, I, I do Twitter because I think it's a really important place to message information. I don't do Instagram very much because I'm not an image-centered person, and I feel like it doesn't necessarily allow for discourse. Uh, and then there's Facebook, which I do, but I would prefer to never do again. <laughs> so <laughs> I will say, find me on Twitter. That's the easiest way to do it. Uh, I read it all the time, more than I should. And I still think that it's really important. It gives us a chance to message publicly the people, the information And it's, in real time, allows us to address these issues, I think, that affect people's lives. If I want to get to more regular people, I go to Facebook, but for the most part, it's Twitter.
0: And your Twitter handle is? At, At Derek Cass. Dara. There you go. Thank you. Yeah, Good. You go. And that'll be in the show notes as well. Dara, this was a total treat. I'm so glad that we finally had the opportunity to get you on the show. Thank you so much for being open to it. And thank you for setting such a great example of while the calendar pages are turning, how do we actually do the work to affect the critical change that we all want? Thank you so much.
1: Don't forget to wear a mask.
0: My thanks once again to Dr. Cass for joining me on this episode of Explore the Space. And thanks once again to our sponsors, Lori Bedke and Creighton University. Learn more about Creighton's Executive MBA and Executive Fellowship programs at www.creighton.edu backslash C-H-E-E. There is a lot going on right now. Everyone is doing their best to move through life the best they know how. Make sure as you do so, wear your masks, maintain physical distancing, wash your hands, register to vote, make your voting plan, get ready to cast your ballot, also, trust but verify, reach out to your friends and family and colleagues and make sure that they are doing the same thing. We will be back soon with another episode. Until then take care. Bye-bye.
1: Thank you for listening to Explore the Space. Visit us on our website, explorethespaceshow.com and please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at ETS show and you can email Dr. Shapiro by writing to Mark at explorethespaceshow.com.